0: would like you to turn in your Bibles with me, if you would please, to the book of Revelation chapter 1, and would also like you, uh, for we're going to reference it just briefly, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And while you're turning there, I'd like you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I'm going to look at uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, and only a part of it. We're going to read that entire verse um, at this time. Reading out of the NIV, this is how it reads. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show His servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending His angel to His servant John. Jesus, we love You this morning. Father, we pray, Jesus, we pray, that You would be unveiled in each and every one of us present this morning, for it is the will of your Father in heaven to dream of his heart before the foundation of the world. Let it be so. We'll give you the praise. Ask that your anointing would fall upon this place as your word is proclaimed. We ask it. Knowing that you are longing to finish the work that you have begun in us. give you all the praise. In your name we pray. Amen. Maybe may be seated. Amen. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, I was thinking on the way here this morning that uh, it was almost to the day ten years ago when I was saved. Today. Almost to the day. And uh, as uh, I was running over this study I want to share with you this morning... Uh, it also dawned on me that uh, in a very real way uh, that I have been waiting for the fulfillment of this passage in my life for 10 years. And I want it to take place this morning. I want to look with you at uh, this first verse, and I'm going to change a couple words in my translation because um, the words can be changed. A couple of the words have alternate translations. If you, uh, have uh, a number of uh, translations present at your disposal in your houses or in your own studies, you'll know that at points, translations uh, differ just a little bit. And uh, we've been finding that there are some translations that are less confusing, and so uh, I just kind of take it li- uh, at my liberty to change a couple of the translations uh, in my, in my uh, NIV to uh, help me understand, really, uh, what the author is trying to communicate. And there's a couple words I want to change in this first verse that is going to be a little, bit, a little bit helpful for us this morning, and uh, those words are uh, Revelation. Okay. Uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ, I like to change that word to the unveiling of Jesus Christ. That's an alternate translation for that word, and it's a little less confusing for us. So when I read this, I will read the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Um, I also want to change um, the word angel that's mentioned toward the end of this verse, which an alternate translation of that word is messenger. And it's also a little bit less confusing when you translate it messenger. So I'll change that. I'm also going to change the entire structure of the last sentence in this verse, and I'm going. I, I, I typically study out of the New International Version. It's the version that was handed to me when I was a Christian, and and I grew up and memorized. Uh, Um, verses out of this translation, so I use the NIV, but I'm going to just translate the last sentence in the New King James Version for it's uh, a better translation, and it conveys the thoughts of the writer more clearly. In my NIV, it's translated, which is the, this is the verse we're, or the section of this verse that we're actually going to look at. My NIV translates it, he made it known by sending his messenger to his servant, John. Okay, that's how the NIV translates that. The New King James is actually a better translation, and it translates it, uh, he sent and signified it by his messenger to his servant John. And so I'll be referring to that in the New King James Version. I want to talk to you a little bit about the book of Revelation in general this morning, kind of uh, bring you up to speed where we've been at in this verse, because there's just a, a lot of material uh, that we have already covered in, in this verse uh, thus far in our studies. The book of Revelation um, is basically divided up into two main sections. It has several subsections, but basically when you're encountering the book, there's really two basic sections to the outline of the book. Uh, The first section is the first three verses uh, of the book. Okay, and that's what we call the prologue. In fact, if you have a New International Version, you'll see that right above the first verse in italics, uh, you'll see the word prologue. Okay, that's the first main section. The second main section begins at verse four of chapter one and extends to the end of the book. Okay, so basically the book of Revelation is divided into two main sections. You have the prologue, first three verses, and then you have the main book, which is from verse four to the end of the book. And these first three verses should, should be understood not to be a part of the prophecy itself, but they are attached to the prophecy. In fact, uh, the word prologue there in italics above your first verse, if you have the NIV, the uh, New King James may also state it, but uh, the word prologue there is a compound word, two Greek words. It's the Greek word pro, which means before, and the Greek word logos, which means word. So these three verses are the words before the book. And this is really typical, if you've read any of John's writings, and he has written several, uh, several but five books in our New Testament, uh, this is typical for him. Uh, Three out of those five books, we have a prologue. And the prologue is given to set boundaries or parameters on the book that he's about to write. In the Gospel according to John, the first 18 verses are a prologue in 1st John the first four verses are a prologue and it is to set boundaries on the book in other words he takes what he's about to write or perhaps in the book of Revelation what he has already written and he sets it aside and in order to set boundaries for that book he gives us a prologue and he says when you read this book which is the book of Revelation he says I'm going to give you boundaries by which you are going to uh... engage this book by which you're going to understand this book these are the parameters of the boundaries in which you're to receive the book of Revelation uh, the book of Revelation is called Revelation, okay, and it gets its name from the first Greek word uh, in the prologue, which is the Greek word apocalypse, okay, apocalypse, or you might even pronounce it apocalypsis, okay? and it can be tra- that word is most often translated revelation, and of course I like to un- I like to translate it um, as often as I remember uh, unveiling. Okay? It's the first Greek word used, and it's, it's, we translate it revelation. It's where we get the name of the book. What's interesting is it's the first time, it's not only the first word mentioned in the book, but it's the last time that word is mentioned in the book. Okay? So we call it revelation because of this first word, but in actuality, that word revelation or unveiling is really just a descriptive term that John uses to describe this book. This book from this point forward is never again called revelation. It's always called prophecy. In fact, in verse 3 of the prologue, John writes, Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. Okay? And he mentions it throughout the book, and it comes across very strong three or four times in chapters 21 and chapter 2, uh, 21 and chapter 22, or maybe just chapter 22. He refers to this consistently as a prophecy. Okay? Consistently as a prophecy. So the book of Revelation is a prophecy, and John describes it as an unveiling or as an Revelation. Okay? So this book is a revelation, or an unveiling, as I like to call it, an unveiling, and he adds, of Jesus Christ. So he takes this prophecy, which is the book, and in the boundaries that he sets before the book, he describes this prophecy as the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Now, as you begin to uh, get into the book, you begin to see this is extremely significant and uh, consistent with the book of prophecy. Because every time, this is neat, Every time Jesus is encountered in the book of Revelation, he is is always encountered as an event who is unveiled, a person who is unveiled. Let me give you a couple examples of this. Uh, For instance, in chapter 1, if you would skim down to verse 9, okay, this is the retelling that John gives us on how he received this prophecy. It begins in verse 9. John says, I, John, your brother and companion, in the suffering and kingdom and in patient endurance that are ours in Jesus Christ, was on the island of Patmos. And then he gives the reason why. Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Verse 10. He says, On the Lord's day, okay, a particular day, on the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit and behind me, I heard a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll. So he's on the island of Patmos in the Lord's day because of the uh, word of God and testimony of Jesus Christ. He hears behind him this loud voice like a trumpet. And it says, hey, write these things down. Now, it's interesting. He turns around. And when he turns around, of course, it's evident that he sees Jesus. But he just doesn't say, I turned around and I saw Jesus. He just doesn't say, I turn around and say, Whoa, hey, Jesus, what are you doing here? He doesn't present it like that. What he sees is not just Jesus, he sees an unveiled Jesus. He sees Jesus, it's it's almost like, um, language that's been helpful for, for me, it's almost like Jesus is just, if you could slit him down the middle, grab one hand on this side and one hand on this side of his chest and just yank him open, you see the insides of his very person and who he is. So he does not turn around and say, I just saw Jesus. He turns around and he sees an unveiled Jesus. Listen to how he describes this. Verse 13. Of course, verse 12 says he turns around to see the voice. Verse 13, he says, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. He was a man. He turns around and he sees someone like a man, but he goes on and he says, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. Verse 15. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like, was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp, double edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Now, when you begin to look at that, Jesus was probably not standing there with this big sword hanging out of his mouth. <laughs> He's got a handful of stars. His hair got all of a sudden white. His <laughs> eyes are glowing. You know, John would have ran kind of thing. This is imagery. Okay, It's imagery language which appears throughout the book. And he's giving content to the person of Jesus Christ as he is unveiled before his eyes. So it's consistent with what he says. See, this is the revelation. This is the revelation that John encountered in the, uh, in, on the island of Patmos. This prophecy. It is the unveiling. It is literally a revealing, but it's an unveiling. Something that's made known. That something is Jesus Christ. He is unveiled before John's eyes. He turns around. He sees this. You see that in chapter one. You not know, only see that in chapter one, but when you come into chapters two and chapter three, uh, chapters two and three, you have these seven churches that are under John's direction. Uh, They're the seven churches that are in the province of Asia, and uh, they're listed uh, throughout these two chapters. It's interesting that Jesus is the one that is speaking to each and every one of these churches. If you have a red letter edition uh, Bible, you'll see that chapter 2 and chapter 3, every bit of it is in uh, red letters. Jesus is the one that's addressing the churches. In fact, you're under the impression that Jesus is literally speaking. He has presented himself, very significant, he has presented himself to each, uh, each one of these churches. In fact, let's look at the first church. To the church of Ephesus, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. And again, that's, that, that's the same imagery that, that was revealed to John on the island of Patmos back in verse 12. Okay? When Jesus was unveiled, that's some of the same words, some of the same ways that Jesus was described. So to the church of Ephesus, hear this, To the church of Ephesus, Jesus didn't show up and yet they saw Jesus there. There is an unveiling of Jesus Christ to the church of Ephesus. When he presents himself to the church of Ephesus, he's just not Jesus. And of course he's Jesus. But he's the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's how he presents himself. Now, that's interesting. But when you go to the next church, church of Smyrna, down in verse 8, Jesus is speaking there as well. But it's interesting that Jesus is unveiled differently to Smyrna than he was to Ephesus. In fact, when you look at the church of Smyrna, verse uh, 8, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. So it's the same Jesus who's speaking, but he unveils himself to that church. And it's interesting that at each and every point where Jesus engages these seven churches, he is unveiling himself to those churches and he is unveiling himself differently to each church. Each church, each church has significant issues, each church has problems, they have barriers, they have, uh, they have dynamics that every, every church has, and each of them, in all of their problems, in all of their barriers, in all of their situations, Jesus presents himself as the answer to that church, Okay, which is powerful. Okay? So the book of Revelation, as consistent, is Jesus Christ standing in the midst of his church and unveiling himself as the answer to every issue in the church. So John, back in the prologue, describes this prophecy. And again, we just looked at these, uh, just briefly at these three chapters. But you find this over and over and over and over consistently throughout the remainder of this prophecy that when Jesus is, is, is presented, he's never just called Jesus He's never just called Jesus, he's called the Lamb of God. Okay. John, when he sees him in chapter 5, he looks and sees Jesus, who it is Jesus, coming up and taking the scroll out of the one who's sitting on the throne, out of his hand. But he just doesn't say, hey, there's Jesus going to get the, uh, the scroll. He says, there was one looking as if it was a lamb that had been slain. So again, Jesus in his very personhood as the redemptive lamb is unveiled before the reader's eyes. So John tells us in this first verse that what you're going to encounter, you've got to get this, that what you're going to encounter above everything else that you're going to encounter in the book of Revelation is an unveiling of the person of Jesus Christ himself. He's unveiled. Okay? So that's kind of what's going on here in this opening, in this opening statement. Now what I really want to center on this morning is down in the last sentence, and of course we're reading this out of the New King James. He, it says, He sent and signified it by his messenger to his servant, John. And what this last statement is really dealing with is ministry. Okay? It's dealing with a messenger and his ministry. And so what we have in this last statement, what we're going to walk through together, is a definition of ministry. Now, in my denomination, uh, I'm an ordained elder. Okay, I'm legal. <laughs> okay? <laughs> They let us go kind of young in my denomination. And uh, so I, I'm a legal minister in uh, the Church of the Nazarene. Um, what I found not only uh, going through college and uh, working through some master's work and, and what I learned just in the casual conversations of, of ministers and elders and my peers and, and my elders. and uh, There's constant talk about ministry But ministry is talked about in really kind of an interesting way, and there's really at two points. Number one, it's always talked about what is ministry, okay? What is ministry and who is able to minister? Or what qualifies you to minister? Now, oftentimes what I hear typically from the church, okay? not, Not completely, but what I hear typically from the church in terms of ministry is ministry is a product of the person who is ministering. Okay, I'm a minister and then I have my ministry. That's how it's talked about. In fact, that's how we're trained in a lot of our schools today. And uh, perhaps you haven't went to minister's training school at a university, but you can go down to your Christian bookstore. Walk right down the middle of the aisle in terms of where it talks about ministry and I guarantee you, you're going to find at least one, several more probably likely, but you're going to find at least one book that will give you instruction, for instance, like the 12 steps to an effective minister. If you want to be a minister then you do or if you want to be into ministry and you want to have ministry flowing out of you then if you do these 12 things then you will have a successful ministry. That's how it's talked about. I have some problems with that. Okay, I have some problems with that. Okay, I have several problems with that. But some of the problems more specifically are it seems like there is a those the way that ministry is talked about in that way ministry is a product of who I am. Uh, it rests on my abilities it rests on my talents it rests on my connections okay? it comes back to the source of who I am as a minister in fact one of the things you find in these books, books especially that if you fall into sin and these talents and abilities fail then your ministry ends okay? and in fact ministry can end in several different ways um, my uh, talking about it in this way uh, I'm an evangelist I'm an attendant evangelist that's my ministry and, talked about in this way, uh, in order to, for me to have a successful ministry, I need to hone my preaching skills. Okay? I need to stand the right way. And I need to look the right way. I need to wear the right kind of clothing. I've been pressed on that a lot. Okay? <laughs> uh, I, I need to look a certain way, talk a certain way, have a certain you know, presentation style. And if those things fail, see, it can affect my ministry. Uh, let's say that I, uh, I'm on my way to Fargo this afternoon and a deer jumps out in front of me and I hit that thing and uh, I, I slam forward and I crush my throat. <laughs> it's, a, it's a brutal picture. I crush my throat on the steering wheel and I'm no longer able to speak. Well, am I going to have a ministry anymore? Well, no, I can't preach, man. I can't preach. I have to learn sign language. I, I have to acquire more skills in order to preach and, and, and maintain my ministry. Does that make sense? Now, that's just one way to talk about it, but see, there's other problems with that. Because it leads us to believe that, well, not everybody can be ministers then. Because some of us just, you know, don't have the right stance. Some of us don't have the right connections. Some of us don't have the right talents and abilities. See, in order to sing, you know, here at Sandstone, you have to have a really good talent with singing. I mean, I know we let Joby sing, but the idea is, ideally, (laughs) is that, you know, hey, you have to have a really, you have to have a talent to sing. You do. I mean, no one's going to let somebody get up there who can't carry a tune in a bucket. You have to have a talent for singing. So that disqualifies some of us. In fact, what happens typically in the church is several of us sit towards the back, we sneak in on Sunday, we're encouraged, we're challenged, perhaps yelled at at times, and we're we're pushed and find a ministry. But find a ministry that suits you. And what happens is we find that we sit around and say, well, I'm really not qualified to minister. I don't have the talents. I don't have the abilities. I wasn't raised in the right home. You know, I, I don't have the right type of family. I, I don't have the right this right, and I'm disqualified for ministry. It's oftentimes how ministry is talked about. I'm not really sure how you uh, talk about ministry in your circles, but man, I hear that a lot. I'm finding that's not true with the scriptures. Okay, I'm really I really I find that's not consistent with the scriptures. Ministry from a, from a biblical perspective is not talked about as coming from my person. It's not talked about from my resource. It's not talked about from the point of my abilities. It's not certainly not talked about in terms of the product of my talents, my connections. It's not talked about in that way. And I want you to look with me just briefly, if you would be willing, at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's rather uh, rather aggressive, and I hope I don't offend you. But I want to talk to you. I want to talk to you very similar the way that Paul talks to the church in Corinth. Now you should know a little bit about the church in Corinth. They're kind of a prideful people, and if you read through First and Second Corinthians, you're going to pick that up very quickly. This is one of the uh, educational centers, um, you know, in the Roman world. Uh, these, are the spir- uh, these are the educationally uh, elite. They're the scholars and they're the ones who, in Athens and Greek, they're the, the, Greece, they're the ones who stand in and debate and, and you know, philosophy. And, and see, they're really about that. Listen to how Paul talks to this group. It's interesting. He says in verse 26 of chapter 1 of First uh, Corinthians, he says, brothers, and actually that word is probably better translated brethren, which incorporates both male and female. It's the way the, new, uh, the uh, NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version, translates it. Brethren, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential, and not many were of noble birth. But God chose very important word God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Who here is a Christian? I want you to raise your hand. <laughs> You're so foolish. <laughs> You're fools. And if you're not willing to call yourself a fool, then you're not willing to call yourself a chosen one by God. because you can only be chosen by God when you admit that you're foolish. You admit that you're a fool, you're a fool. Okay? He chose the foolish thing, didn't choose the wise. So you can't stand and say, "Wow, why am I a Christian? Because I'm so wise. Well, you're not wise. you're foolish. Okay? We can all tell that. Okay? <laughs> I, I'm in that category. I'm a Christian. I'm foolish, and you certainly can tell that verse 27 but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise he goes on God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong who here's weak raise your hand who here's a christian raise your hand yeah there's less hands okay you're weaklings okay you're weak you're weak that doesn't seem to be the way you'd want to talk about a minister i didn't learn that in doctrine of holiness okay You know, that's not the way we really talk about ministers. And I I don't know if that's the way you interviewed your pastor before he came. You know, setting down. Are you a fool? Are you a weakling? You know, these are the standards that we have. These are the standards that we've set. You know, he goes on. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lonely things. The lowly. Okay. That's a, that's a meaning for, for teens. Okay? He chose you make a shell, uh, an L in the shape of uh, a finger and thumb in the shape of an L and you put it on your forehead. Okay? Yeah, loser. <laughs> okay? He shows the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before Him. I um, can't tell you the comfort that, that offered me when I became a Christian 10 years ago. And... Um, Overwhelmed by the call to preach, uh, my first response is typically, from what I'd always heard, I, I'm unable. I don't have the talents. I don't have the abilities. I don't have the background that it takes to be a minister. I just, I don't have what I don't have the education. I'm not intelligent enough. I, I'm not good at public speaking. Barely passed. Got to, you know, I just, I don't have what it takes. Okay, I don't have what it takes to be a minister. I begin to, I begin to just kind of skim through the scriptures and really found it interesting both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, the kind of people that God chose. You know, Samuel comes to the house of, uh, of um, David's dad, uh, Jesse, it's early, uh, Samuel comes to Jesse's house and says, Hey, man, need one of your sons. Jesse's excited, grabs all of his boys, lines them up out front. Samuel walks before each one, and they're, hey, they're good-looking boys. They're tall, you know, just thick, broad-shouldered. Just, I mean, they're the perfect candidates for a king. really are. And Samuel stands before each one of them, and he says, uh, No, uh, no, no. Goes all the way through the list, and it's no, 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 no. And he comes to the list, and he looks over at uh, Jesse, and he says, Got any more sons? And he says, Well, not really. Oh, hold on. Yeah, we got David. You know, but he, you know, he's out in the field really ain't worth much he's hanging out with the sheep he says go get him and he chose, the, he chose David the little one um, and those seem to be typically the kind of people Moses couldn't even speak he had to lasso Aaron in that kind of thing you know, to get Moses to carry the message you know, Moses to, to uh, be involved in the intimacy of God and the deliverance of Egypt and, and of course you go to the New Testament it's not any better you've got 12 ignorant fishermen you're dealing with there okay <laughs> You've got uh, Matthew was a tax collector, Jane, you got, you know, just those, and of course Peter, Lord help us with Peter, you've got these kinds, see Jesus didn't go, and I found that, Look lit- now again, I don't know how church people view this, but see as a guy in my position at that time, I would have just, I would have just bet, of course, you know, I would have just, Jesus would have certainly went down to the temple. He he would have went to the religious institution of his day. He would have went to the seminary to get ministers. You don't go to the bars. I mean, come on. That makes no sense whatsoever. These are the ones that he chooses. See, this was the crowd that surrounded him. So ministry, Revelation chapter 1, ministry is always talked about from a biblical perspective. Ministry is always talked about from a biblical perspective as that which is beyond you and beyond your capabilities. Okay? So ministry is not about who I am, but ministry, and you've heard this before, ministry is about who He is through me. I'm an empty vessel. In fact, as you begin to go down through, and I told you to go back to uh, Revelation and I would like you to do that, but as you begin to go through 1 Corinthians, you hear Paul talking about this sort of thing. And uh, just just listen to this. Paul says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or uh, superior wisdom. As I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. My message was, uh, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. See, that's ministry. See, it's not, you know, really good speaking. It's not really good preaching. It's not eloquent standing. See, it's a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom but on God's. And he continues to move through this book and he begins to talk about ministers of a new covenant. Do you know, do you realize that each and every one of us who are found in Christ, saved, Christians, each and every one of us are ministers. And the qualifications of ministry are beyond you. Okay. The qualifications of a minister minister are not found in who you are, but they're found in who he is. This is exactly what our passage is dealing with. He begins again, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. He begins again with the unveiling of the person. And by the time he comes to the end of this verse, he says he, he sent and signified it, uh, by his messenger, and in fact, that word "by" uh, can also be translated through. So he sent and signified it through his messenger. Really got interested in the idea of that messenger. What you know? What does a messenger look like? Because what we're talking about here at the end of this verse is this messenger and his ministry, his messenger and his ministry. Okay, this messenger has a ministry. We're talking about that. Really got interested in this idea of a messenger because it's translated angel in uh, in uh, at least several translations. Uh, the Greek word is agalos. Okay, agalos. Which you can translate both angel and messenger. And if you would uh, tra- uh, trace this throughout your Bible in the Greek language, of course, the New Testament was written in... Greek. And the Old Testament was written in... Hebrew. Uh, 25, 30 years before Christ was born, the Hebrew was translated into Greek, and we call that the... Septuagint. If you ever see a, a quotation in your Bible, LXX, that's a reference to the Septuagint. It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the, the Bible that the disciples used. Okay? More than likely, the, the Bible that the disciples used. It's a Greek, entire Greek, Old Testament and New Testament. If you would trace this word that we translate angel and messenger throughout both the Old Greek and the New Testament Greek, what you would find is in the Old Testament, it's used 281 times. 281 times and in the New Testament it's used 175 times primarily it does refer to this uh, it's, it's an angelic being okay it's, it's an angel and there's all kinds of descriptions about that kind of a, a messenger, the angelic messenger all kinds of descriptions about that in the Bible. One of my favorites is in Matthew chapter uh, uh, 27 the, or actually it's going into chapter 28, uh, 28 it's the resurrection scene. And you have these, these guards. <laughs> it's a really neat scene if you've ever, if you've ever read it. Uh, there's these guards that are posted outside Jesus' tomb. Okay? He's been dead in there for three days, and they've taken this large boulder, uh, this, this circular stone, very, very, very heavy, and it was up on this hill, they pulled out the stops, and it rolled down and covered the face of the tomb in which Jesus was laid. And they guard that thing because of the rumors that the disciples were going to come and steal it. So they're there. And Mary and the other Marys, all kinds of Marys running around, and uh, they brought a Martha with her, and uh, they come to uh, get into the tomb to do, go through the burial. Uh, you know, the burial deal of the anointing the body and that sort of thing and so they show up and in the midst of the scene where the women are and these guards are this angel of the Lord that's the word angel, angelic messenger appears and there's this incredible earthquake where rocks are, you know and and trees and all this everything it's an incredible earthquake due directly by the presence of the angel descending The, the descending angel is the one that caused the earthquake and it says that the men, these, these you know, special forces Roman guards, okay, these men standing there in the, uh, uh, in the passage, uh, the, uh, the New King James translates it, they shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Which means they fainted. <laughs> It was such a startling, you know, such a startling scene, and such a presence that came from this angelic being that they passed out and fell over. And you got these women that are sitting there chatting. In fact, the angel comes down, and again, this messenger, this angelic being, is just filled with just it's it's a mag it's a magnificent story. He grabs this stone, he hurls it over to the side, and he goes over and sits down on it. Okay, it's this statement of power. It's wow, angelic being. Okay, that's how that this word is used, uh, tied to this angelic being throughout the Bible. One of the things I found interesting, you with me? One of the things I found interesting about this word, though, messenger, it's not always an angelic being. In fact, oftentimes, uh, several times, it's used as a human messenger. In other words, an angel or messenger, same Greek word, angel or messenger, does not have to be an angelic being. It can be a human being. You have the potential of being a messenger. You have a potential of being a messenger. Let me give you just a couple of these examples that I begin to run into uh, throughout the scope of Scripture. I ran into it first, and you won't have to turn here. I'll just read these really briefly. I ran into it back in uh, uh, 2 Samuel, and he's the same guy as 1 Samuel. (laughs) And, um, of course, David uh, is sending messengers, and we know the scene. Uh, He sees Bathsheba, and is like, wow, you know, and uh, just really taken back by the beauty of Bathsheba. And... um, uh, he sends messengers. Listen to how it says it in Second uh, Samuel. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of uh, Eliam? I think is how you pronounce it. The wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Then David sent messengers. That's the word. Not angelic beings, they're messenger boys. Okay? They're guys that are around the temple that are used to send messengers. Okay? Uh, so they're they are messengers, and they're, they're not angelic beings, they're just mere people. Uh, that's an Old Testament, and there are several in the Old Testament, and I didn't want to go through all of them, give you one of them. But there's a couple in the New Testament that I find significant. One of them's in Luke, okay? and they're referred to by John's disciples. Okay, John actually had messengers. Again, just generic messengers. John's disciples, uh, of course it says uh, in response to Jesus raising a widow's son, the news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. John's disciples told him about uh, all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one uh, uh, who was to come or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many... Who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. Here it is. So he replied to the messengers. Okay, John had sent messengers. Hey, are you the one? Is it, could this be the one? So he grabbed some guys, and they become messengers. They're not angelic beings. Okay, say they're not ange- same word. Angel can be applied to these guys. They're not angelic beings, but they're messengers. Okay, they're angels or messengers. Uh, Philippians is a neat little verse. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger. That's the word. Uh, The last one, which I found most interesting, was in James, uh, referring to Rahab, the prostitute who hid the spies. That word spies there is actually the Greek word that we get messenger or angel. They were spies. They were messengers that were sent in. Now this is very significant and let me tell you why. Because in this opening statement that John gives, okay, about this revelation that there was this communication uh, of this prophecy that was made through this ambiguous messenger. Probably most scholars tell us it was an angel, but not always. It ha- it doesn't always have to be a messenger. In fact, as you begin to skim through, as you begin to skim through this, the first few chapters, you find that before you have any angelic messengers, you have messengers that are human beings that are involved, get this, that are involved in the unveiling of Jesus Christ. You have, let me say it again, you have human beings that are involved. Intimately, they have been called as messengers and involved of the ministry of the unveiling of the person. Let me give it to you. verse uh, Chapter 1, again, look at this uh, scene where Jesus uh, appears to John, he turns around and he sees him. Verse ten. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, "Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches." Okay, here's what he said. Hey, write this down and send it. Send this to the seven churches, and then he lists those seven churches. And so again, going to the, those were actual physical locations during the during the uh, day of John. When he uh, the island of Patmos was actually a place of banishment. Okay. Uh, The emperor Domitian had banished John there. And of course, as the island of Patmos was a literal place, these seven churches in the province of Asia, okay Ephesus and uh, Smyrna and uh, uh, Pergamum and all these seven towns that are mentioned, these seven locations, these seven cities, were actual physical locations. And this letter was to go to those seven locations. Here's what's also interesting. When you begin to go to those seven locations and find that this prophecy is given... You find this prophecy is given, you find that at the very beginning of each of the churches, this prophecy comes through, guess who? A messenger. Now look at this. To the angel or messenger of the church in Ephesus, right? So apparently there was someone now, was it an angelic being? Maybe they did have angels just you know, hanging around the church in their day. You know, Every church was issued their own angelic being that would come down and cause an earthquake and they would grab stones and throw it around and people would faint. And Maybe they had that in the first century. But most scholars tell us that this angel or messenger that this, this prophecy is being sent to was probably not an angelic being, but it was a person. Get this. Some scholars even suggest that it was probably an itinerant ministry, which we understand would be an evangelist. Okay, you understand? Probably not a pastor, but an evangelist. Okay, you missed it, but anyway, the idea is: is this angel or messenger uh, at each church has one? In chapter two, verse one, the angel it says to the angel or the messenger of the church in Ephesus, write these things. Verse eight: to the angel or messenger of the church in Smyrna, write these things. Verse twelve: to the angel or messenger of the church in Pergamum, write these things. And so at each and every one of these locations, you have some sort of, scholars tell us, that it's, it, it, it's, it's almost a guarantee that these were uh, physical human being, you and I type of messengers in which this prophecy was communicated through. Mm. So what we can talk about, now get this, very important, what we can talk about here in, in this first verse is that when he begins to talk about the messenger and his ministry, that is not exclusively an angelic ministry. Okay, The unveiling of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known, in IV. He sent and signified it through his messenger. Now we can't say, oh, he did that through an angel. No, 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 no. See, that can be both an angel and a human being. So we're talking about the ministry of this messenger. We can compare that to the ministry that's going on in you and I. And the reason we can do that is because the messengers in chapter 2 and chapter 3 were human beings. And the prophecy that he's talking about describing here in this first verse is not only about angelic messengers, but in the second and third chapter, they're human beings who are messengers. So when we're talking about messengers, you understand you and I can fit in that category. <laughs> we can, I can be a messenger. If okay. the angel is a messenger, I myself can be a messenger. In fact, I would go as far as to say, as a Christian, you are a messenger. Okay? You are a messenger. So now that we've established that, hey man, when he writes in this first verse and he talks about this messenger in his ministry, wow, hey, I can fit as a messenger. Well, what's my ministry? Well, the ministry is tied up really in the entire verse as a whole. Go back to this first verse uh, with us. And again, I want to read this last statement in the New King James. It's a little bit more clear. The NIV says, he made it known. And then it says, by sending his messenger. So when I read this first in the NIV, here's what I, here's what I gathered. Jesus made this known, and that's himself. Okay? Uh, the it that he's talking about, he made it known. The word it there, and you see this in the New King James. Now if you have the New King James, it's in italics. And that tells us that that word is actually not even present in the Greek. It's stuck there in the English to help us put together um, uh, what the it actually is. Because we have to have the it there. The noun or the subject of the sentence, what it is, is actually the unveiling of Jesus Christ. So you should, instead of just saying, he made the unveiling of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his sermons what must soon take place, known, instead of saying all that, he just said, he made it known. Does that make sense? So the it is the unveiling of the person of Jesus Christ. He made it known. Okay? That's the it. I found it interesting that in IV, it says he made the unveiling of Jesus Christ known. And then it says, by sending his messenger. Which painted a picture for me. This unveiling of Jesus was known by sending this messenger. But that's not how it is in the original language. And the New King James is a better translation, because get this, get this, this is awesome. The unveiling of Jesus Christ was what was sent, not the messenger. The New King James tells us, he sent and signified it through his messenger. Now that's very important because the Greek word we have for sent is the Greek word apostello which is an authoritative sending which has nothing to do with the messenger whatsoever. I find it interesting that sometimes we'll get together before teen services or before revivals and we'll pray and they pray stuff like Jesus, let your anointing fall upon Jeremiah. I never say anything. But I almost want to go hold on Jesus. No, let me clarify something really quick. I don't have an anointing and the anointing's not on me. In fact, what's really taking place this morning is you're not here to listen to me. You're here somehow to listen to the person. Because the message that is sent did not come from me, it came from the person. The authority and the power of the message does not come from the messenger. See, it's it's not a talent. It's not an ability. See, the authority and the power of the message does not come from the messenger. It comes from the message. It comes from what is sent, which is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Which is why in the Old Testament, God could use a man or a donkey still does today sometimes. but the idea is the idea is is that we are and as Paul says, an empty vessel. And so the proper way to translate this, this verse is Jesus says uh, or John writes, he sent, he sent and signified it, which is the unveiling of Jesus Christ through his message uh, through his messenger to John. So through this messenger, through the messenger was the power and the authority, this apostello word, the, the sending of the power and the authority of the unveiling of Jesus Christ was through the messenger. Okay. So the ministry is not, does not come from the messenger. The messenger in this passage, which can be both an angelic being or a human being, the, the power and authority does not come from them. It comes from the message. It comes from the unveiling of Jesus Christ. I found this interesting when you begin to look at, again, these examples that are given to us here in chapter 2 and 3, that this unveiling of the person, this unveiling of Jesus Christ himself is made known through this messenger. This is really interesting because when you begin to read this, and I'm rather a simple kind of guy, reading chapters 2 and 3, if it wasn't in a red letter edition, I might be a little confused. Why I get red letter editions. If there was red and blue letters, I'd probably get those too. But, you know, the idea is this red letter edition helps me. Because the way that I read this as a new Christian when I read the book of Revelation was that this was kind of, uh, this messenger was like a messenger boy. Okay? John... John is told on the island of Patmos to write these things down and give it to the seven churches. By the time you come into chapter 2 and 3, you find out that this message is given to these seven messengers, to these churches. From my perspective, was Jesus, or John, wrote down this message, okay? He goes, you know, whistled for these seven messengers to come. He makes copies, photocopied them, and got one for each of the seven and then gave them, to, and they took them to the churches and then read this. But you know what's interesting? When you begin to come into chapters 2 and 3, you realize that the messenger, now get this, the real messenger, the real deal of what's taking place here, what's, what's really, who's speaking here is Jesus. Chapter two and three is all in the red letters. Mm-hmm. Chapter two and three is Jesus speaking. In fact, when you read through these, you're under the impression that Jesus himself showed up one Sunday out of the blue in between team camps, walked right in and said, hey, I want to talk to you. And he spoke to these churches, which made me scratch my head. Well, hold on was Jesus the one who showed up on Sunday and preached? yes! and you say so it wasn't the messenger no no it was the messenger well hold on was it the messenger or was it Jesus? yes! (laughs) it was the messenger who showed up and presented himself and through the messenger the unveiling of Jesus Christ was was made known and he spoke to the seven churches so this messenger comes again, the passage. This messenger comes in chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel, or the messenger of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words, and those are presented to the seven churches. Which gives us some content to ministry. And gives me, of course, great hope. That what ministry is, is not the product of talent. It's not the product of abilities. It's not the product of, of who I am and and the gumption that I can get up, and I, I try to drink a couple Red Bulls so I can be hyper enough and uh, you know and and you know and and really get fired up. That's kind of the language we use, really get fired up and, and get the, the warm fuzzies and the anointing and have some prayers for me. And then I get up and I really give it to them. And see, that's not ministry. That's not what we're talking about. Ministry is described here over and over, not only in this first verse, but throughout the book of Revelation, is is the miracle of the new covenant. Where we as messengers are not just messenger boys who get something from Jesus and go and present it to people, but we become the very vessels by which the person of Jesus Christ is unveiled and he speaks to our world. Seen this really strong last week to junior hires. Um, it's really neat to tap into their minds and, and uh, allow Jesus to be unveiled in those surfaces. Uh, Saturday, no, it was, it was Friday night. They had a bonfire. that's what most teens do at the end of the week. And uh, we all got around, and a lot of the teens were saying, "You know, uh, "Boy, Jeremiah really spoke to me." or, "I really want to thank Jeremiah for teaching me this." And I want to talk about Jeremiah this." And you had a couple teens, and they were happened to be senior high boys, uh, I'm sorry, junior high boys that were going into senior high and they stood up and made very appropriate, very non-derogatory. Clear statements that, you know, it really wasn't Jeremiah the one who was speaking to us. That there was God himself that visited us in this place this week, is the way they talked about it. And we had an encounter with him, not with Jeremiah. Yeah, Jeremiah was there wagging his mouth as he always does. But Jeremiah was merely the vessel by which the unveiling of the person took place, not only in the services, but throughout the week come into the Old Testament and it's made over plain over and over again that it is God who's the one that's providing for Israel. It is God, He's the resource by which the people of Israel are going to win the battles. It's not their own might. It's God Himself. You can't miss that. You come into the New Testament and you have the vessel. Proclaim before the foundation of the earth Jesus Christ who comes in and he is the he is the stage he is the vessel he is the very I like the word uh, he is the very event by which his father spoke to the people of his day and then of course uh, not only in Jesus but uh, of course you have these these disciples who in the book of Acts they become the vessel, the stage they become the very event as where the Father you listen to me the father through Jesus, they were now Jesus through the disciples. And you have that in the book of Acts, and throughout the book of Acts, and the epistles, you begin to find that it's not just, you know, um, specially for Jesus, or uniquely to the twelve apostles, but you have each and every Christian, if you can get a hold of this, each and every one who believes, each and every one of us, become the habitation of Christ, and are the conduit by which Jesus Christ himself ministers to our world, which changes all kinds of our language. See, we get, we get together and talk about, wow, we just, at a teen camp, we need to love these teens. Well, no. See, we need to let him love these teens. I, I can't tell you what this means and what this has been doing to me in my life as a, as a father. Um, and we've talked about this. I, I don't have what it takes to raise my son. Wouldn't it be wonderful if I could be the event? Moment by moment, where Jesus Christ could come in my home, unveil himself in my life, through my life, upon the stage of my life, and I could become the very event by which Jesus Christ raises my kids. What is a Christian? The book of uh, Revelation, as he begins, talks about these messengers. Some are angelic, some are humans. Who it is, it really doesn't matter. You and I qualify as a messenger. And what that means is, is we become the very avenue, we become the very event where Jesus Christ is unveiled in our life. And when pe- could you imagine what that would be like when you go down to a high school as a high school teacher and Jesus Christ sits in your class and reveals Himself all day long? <laughs> See, that whole we can't pray in school things is retarded. <laughs> that makes no sense whatsoever. Jesus Christ is pumping Himself from behind that desk every day. Down at the factory, Jesus Christ Himself is there taking that bolt and screwing it in that hole. Because we are nothing more than an empty vessel who have, hey, we're the losers. We're the foolish ones. We're those who do not claim any, any, any praise whatsoever. Our, our message does not come with wisdom or power or might or with intellect, but a demonstration of His power that is being unveiled in our life. I want to ask you this morning. Would you let that take place in your life? That ministry is not talked about in terms of just preaching. It's not talked about in terms of leadership in the church and and showing up and, and being on staff and having a paid position. Ministry is the very presence of Jesus Christ in the believer's life as he unveils himself to a dying world. Would you let him in your life like that? I wonder what it would be like if I could get up every day and say, Jesus, I want to be crucified with Christ so that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And when my world looks at me, they don't see me, they see you. And when they walk away from me, they don't say, wow, Jeremiah said this. They walk away saying, I had an encounter with a guy the other day who reminded me so much of Jesus. I thought it was him for a second. He was unveiling Himself right there in that I become the event by which Jesus speaks. Jesus, we want you like that this morning. I want you like that.